um, I've entitled my sermon this evening, In Christ, the Hope of Glory. And we're going to be looking at those verses just in a little while. But firstly, by way of just refreshing everybody's memory of what we've covered so far, the letter to the Colossians starts with a greeting from the writer. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And uh, Galatians 1.1 declares to us that Paul's apostleship was not from men, it was not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So here and in other places in the New Testament, Paul traces his apostleship back to no less than the will of God. Paul's apostleship was not pursuing um, something that he had chosen for himself, it was not something that he was trained for by other men, but it was well and truly something that God had called him to. His ministry was carried out with the solemn awareness that it's a pursuit um, he didn't call for himself, but that God had in his own will chosen him to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And with this God-given authority, Paul writes the epistle to the Colossians. When Paul could not personally visit a church, he would usually write them a letter. And this was especially true towards the end of Paul's ministry. You know, he spent two years waiting for a trial in Caesarea and then another two years in Rome under house arrest. But he was allowed to have uh, visitors. Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes I also wonder how uh, those people who were chained to him, the Roman soldiers who took shifts, how they would have coped with all of that. I'm sure they would have been expert preachers of the gospel when Paul had finished with them. And I just wonder how many of them became followers of Christ and went on to spread the good news of the gospel. So, as I said, Paul was allowed visitors, and it was through a visit by a fellow minister called Epaphras that the letter to the Colossians came to be written. We read in Acts in, in chapter 19 that uh, through Paul's ministry in Ephesus, people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the gospel of Christ and turned away from false gods made by human hands. And Epaphras was one of Paul's converts there. And Epaphras' home was in Colossae. So he took the gospel home and he started a church there. So although Paul had never actually visited Colossae, he had a special relationship with the, the pastor, if you like. Now, Epaphras reported to Paul that false teaching was invading the church and causing a crisis amongst the saints. We can broadly encapsulate this false teaching under the banner of Gnosticism. I'm sure you've probably heard that word. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. The Gnostics, as they were known, claimed to have a, you know, a superior level of understanding of spiritual matters. And Gnosticism has continued to deceive people even to the present day. It's morphed into many different streams over the years, but its fundamental worldview is still predominant. Not just in false religions, but in, professing, in the professing church. So when we examine some of these heresies that Paul was dealing with at the time, you may recognize some of those today. In Paul's day, it was an odd blending of you know, Jewish legalism, Greek, philosophy, Eastern mysticism, but it also did include some Christian truth. And, you know, that's where it's always dangerous. There's a little bit of truth that kind of sways people. If it was all false, people would pick up on it pretty quickly. Now, 
I'm sure you've all met some super spiritual Christians who look down on other Christians because, you know, they have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. They claim to have a special mystical revelation from God. They think it gives them a full knowledge of spiritual truth which is not available to others. And, you know, this is a fairly big beguiling sort of a thing, isn't it? Because it will strongly appeal to those who, who want to be superior. The subtle message is that the Bible is not enough and Christ is not enough. Because unless you're in the know, you know, you, you will miss out. You know, you're going to live your life in the spiritual basement as a second-class, unenlightened Christian. Now, just so we can get a better understanding of the source of the crisis at Colossae, Here's a bit of background information. Colossae was situated on a major trading route uh, and made up of firstly native Phrygians and then Greeks who, who settled at the time of uh, the Alexander the Great and Jews who wanted to exploit the trading opportunities and, of course, the Romans. And in today's language, it was a, you know, a pluralistic town with many different religions, none of them which really had the predominance. There was just a lot of different re religions. Paul's letter under, uh, sort of underscores that he understood how the main areas of religious belief at Colossae had contributed to the crisis at hand. As I mentioned, you may well recognize some of these false beliefs in the contemporary settings where lies, the lies and deceptions are exactly the same as they were back then, but they just have modern labels. One Bible commentator has identified at least six main areas of religious belief in Colossae. Firstly, there was animism and superstition. The native Phrygians believe in elemental spirits who exercise power through the natural world. So a spirit may control a river or a forest or reside in a particular mountain. And this led to superstitious practices and sacrifices to appease these territorial spirits. It's very similar to beliefs that are still held today in some jungle tribes, for instance. And also, although the Greenies would never admit to it, it's also a basis of some of the thought in the Green political movement as well. You know, they love to worship trees and all that stuff. We, we won't go into that. Astrology, the belief that stars and planets influence people's life, that was prominent. Astrology probably arrived via travellers from the east and locals had no problem incorporating astrology into their belief system. And um, we, there's also, again, modern parallels today. There's evidence to suggest that over 90% of adults today know their zodiac sign and well over 50% agree that the signs, you know, essential character descriptions are a good fit. Um, according to polls, approximately 25% of people in Britain, Canada and US believe in horoscopes. So we can see this hasn't gone away. Greek and Roman gods. All the Roman and Greek gods and goddesses were present in Colossae, along with their associated pagan practices. Some people believe that the gods welcomed rigid abstinence from bodily desires, such as food and sex. But then on the other hand, some, other, some believe that God, the gods actually smiled on lax sexual behavior that had become a characteristic of, of Roman life. Then there was the mystery religions, and we've already touched on this. These were generally associated with some form of Gnosticism. Uh, Gnostic uh, is the opposite of agnostic. Okay? An agnostic is someone who doesn't know. 
a Gnostic is someone who's in the know. Gnostics claim to understand, understand special secrets through spiritual experience. Some, some claim that all matter was evil, including the human body, and therefore God could not come into contact with matter. So they claim that since Christ had a human body, he was actually just an emanation from God and not truly the Son of God. They proposed a complex series of emanations, including angels, between God and man, and thus denied the preeminence of Christ. Their doctrine called for legalistic practices and strict disciplines, you know, taste not, you know, handle not, touch not. They taught that certain days were holy and certain foods were sinful. And Paul would go on to say this about their practices. These things have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Colossians 2.23. Gnosticism bedeviled the early church and continues in various forms in the professing church today, confusing and deceiving multitudes of Bible-ignorant uh, believers in professors of Christianity. Then there was Judaism. The, the style of Judaism in Colossae was different to that in the Holy Land. It was more philosophical, more mystical, less moral than in Israel, in part due to that Gnostic influence. It, it, it was full of speculation and as such was compelling and interesting for people. It gave a high place to angels as, angel, and as agents both in creation and in the giving of the law. And it was thought that angels controlled the communication between God and people. And then also, as I said, there was Christianity. We mentioned that there was no evidence that Christianity came to Colossae through the Apostle Paul. It was Epaphras who got converted through Paul's preaching and then took the gospel back to, Paul's, to his hometown. Now, Paul wrote to the church at Colossae on the basis of that report that Epaphras had brought to him. Now, I just want to just quickly mention, just to digress a little bit, um, that at this, this point that Paul also wrote his epistles to the Ephesians and also Philemon at this sort of roughly the same time. And we can see that from the overlapping themes and personal uh, names in these epistles. And the overall theme of Ephesians is the, the church of Christ. It's all about Christ's church. But the theme of Colossians is the Christ of the church. And these two letters go very well together. The book of Ephesians focuses on the body and the book of Colossians focuses on the head. And Pastor Tom is planning to commence a verse-by-verse -verse study of Ephesians in term one next year. So our, our journey through Colossians and Ephesians, I'm just so looking forward to everything. It'll be absorbing and instructive and most edifying to us. So with that background in mind, Paul writes a singularly Christological letter to the Colossian church. Paul goes out of his way to declare that Christ is first, Christ is foremost, he is preeminent, he is above all. He tells the Colossians that every believer is complete in Christ alone. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Colossians 2.9 In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.3 
There is no need for speculation, mystical visions or ritualistic uh, regulations because faith in Christ alone is sufficient. Paul's predominant purpose is to refute heresies that devalue Jesus. Paul counters the false teaching by presenting the true attributes and accomplishments of Christ. A proper view of Christ is Paul's antidote for heresy. So, so far, we have seen that Christ is, firstly, the basis of the believer's hope, Colossians 1.5, the source of the believer's power for a new life, Colossians 1.11, the believer's redeemer and reconciler, 1.4, the embodiment of full deity, 1.15, the creator and sustainer of all things, 1.16-17, the Lord of creation, 116 to 17. The head of the church, 118. And the author of reconciliation, 120 to 22. Now, we'll move on now to tonight's text, which speaks of the Christ's preeminence in Paul's ministry to the church and his sacrificial service to Christ. So we'll look at Colossians 1, 24 to 29. I knew that would happen. Okay, Colossians 1, 24 to 29. Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which had been hidden from ages and from generations but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. To this end I also labor, striving according to his mighty working which works in me mightily. Now when... Paul talks about the suffering of the body of Christ in his body. It's important to understand he does not mean suffering in the way that Jesus suffered on the cross. That work is finished. There is nothing to be added to that work. It is complete. And he doesn't mean, you know, the self-flagellation like uh, Luther did before he was, he was a Christian, you know, whipping himself until blood flowed down his body. Paul is referring to participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue in his, in, his, in his body today. There is a, a sense in which Christ still suffers in this way. Remember what happened to Paul on the way uh, to Damascus, on the road to Damascus, his experience there prior to conversion. He was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord and he went to the high priest and requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus and asking for their cooperation to arrest Christians, and if he found them there. He, he really had an attitude towards Christians. And then the scriptures record that as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone, shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Acts 9. Now, Paul was not consciously persecuting Jesus. He thought Jesus had been done away with. He thought he was only persecuting Christians. He was an angry enemy of the gospel whose zeal was aimed 
at inflicting pain and injury to the church. But he learned that in, in persecuting believers, he was persecuting Christ himself. The head in heaven feels the suffering of his body on earth. But now, Paul's motivation for enduring suffering was to build and to edify Christ's church. In his letter to the Philippian church, Paul says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me, Philippians 1.29. So Paul here is looking upon the sufferings that he and all Christians are required to go through for the Lord's sake, sufferings that still remain. These include, for instance, suffering for righteousness' sake, suffering for the gospel's sake, and all sufferings for his name's sake. Remember how in, in Acts chapter 5, how the apostles were thrown into jail for preaching Christ? After the, the Jewish high council had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And in 1 Peter 4, it says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a busybody in other people's matters. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So we are called to suffer, not as unbelievers suffer, but those who profess the name of Christ. One commentator remarked, the sufferings of unsaved people are, in a sense, purposeless. There is no high dignity attached to them. They are only a foretaste of the pangs of hell that will be endured forever, but not so the sufferings of Christians. When they suffer for Christ, Christ is in a real way suffering with them. Amazingly, Paul said, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Now, just think that this is the same Paul, on the one hand, who said, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart that just won't go away. For I could wish that I were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. But at the same time, he never lost his joy and enthusiasm for ministry. Anyone who expects the absence of suffering and grief in their service to Christ is certain sooner or later to lose their joy and enthusiasm for ministry. And many will ultimately suffer burnout and just walk away. But listen to what John MacArthur, still powering at age 83. <laughs> I just find this guy amazing. At 83, he's probably preaching better than ever. He says, sometimes you hear pastors say, oh, you know, I'm going through burnout. Burnout? What are you talking about? You don't get burned out by doing work. Plumbers don't get burnout. Ditch diggers don't get burnout. People who work hard don't get burnout. Burnout means you have unrealistic expectations that aren't being met. Jesus said, so likewise, when you have done all these things which are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Luke 11, 17, 10. Along with Paul, let us suffer for the sake of the body of Christ. And when we do, let us rejoice in our suffering. 
We can be certain that sufferings will come. But, but listen, if we are suffering for the right reasons, then the scriptures assure us we will prevail over our sufferings. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 to 10. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our body. In verses 24 and sorry, 25 and 26, Paul proceeds to give his you know, philosophy of ministry, if you like. Paul asserts that God has entrusted him with a ministry to Christ's church to proclaim God's entire message, a message that was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now is being revealed to his people. He was made a minister according to a stewardship from God, bestowed upon him for the benefit of the body of Christ and the souls of men. Unlike many today who call themselves ministers of Christ, who see, who see ministry as just a means of gain, a very lucrative career, Paul's fundamental perspective for life and ministry was that God had entrusted him with a stewardship for others. Stewardship in the Greek word is oikonomia. Oikos is the word for house. Nomia comes from nomos, the word from, for the law. So Paul was given the responsibility of managing the house, if you like. Like a bishop or an overseer, Paul was given this supervisory responsibility. In Galatians 2.7, calls, he calls it being entrusted with the gospel. Paul was acutely aware that he'd been given a stewardship, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of others. And stewardship, which God himself would call, for which God himself would hold him accountable. The writer of the Hebrews says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out over your souls as those who must give account. Let's now look more closely at the subject of Paul's ministry. Verses 26 and 27 speak about a mystery that was kept secret in past ages and generations and now has been revealed to God's people. That revelation being that the riches and glory of Christ are for Gentiles as well as the Jews. Christ now lives in all believers, giving them an assurance that will share in his glory. The mystery or unveiling of Christ's church was not known in the Old Testament and could never have been discovered by man's own wisdom or intelligence. But God had now graciously condescended to make it known. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the extent that now the manifold wisdom of God may be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2, 8 to 11. It is incorrect to speak of the church as having started with Adam or Abraham. The church began on the day of Pentecost, and the truth of the church was revealed by the apostles. The church in the New Testament is not the same as Israel in the Old Testament. 
The church is something that never previously existed. Israel began with God calling Abram, later Abraham, from his home in Ur of the Chaldees, an area that was renowned for idolatry. And Abraham had no knowledge of the one true God or his plans to choose a special people for himself. Nor did he know that the savior of the world would come from his offspring. So then God made the nation of Abraham, a nation of Israel, out of Abraham's seed, and a nation was a nation that was distinct and separate from other nations, which he gave up to idolatry. William MacDonald comments, the church is the opposite of this. It's a union of believers from all races and nationalities into one body, morally and spiritually. The church is not the continuation of Israel. That can be seen from a number of things, one being the figure of the olive tree that Paul uses in Romans 11 to show that the nation of Israel retains its identity, though the individual Jew who believes in Christ becomes a part of the church because there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all, Colossians 3.11. So the, the truth of this mystery can be summarized as follows. The church is the body of Christ. All true believers are members of the body and destined to share in Christ's glory forever. The Lord Jesus is the head of the body, providing life and nourishment and direction. Jews have no preference as to admission to the church, neither are Gentiles at any disadvantage. Both Jew and Gentile become members of the body through faith and form one new man. That the Gentiles could be saved was not a hidden truth in the Old Testament, but that converted Gentiles could be fellow members of the body of Christ to be his companions in glory and, and to reign with him was a truth that was never previously known. This particular aspect of the ministry which Paul is emphasizing, in, it is in verse 27, is that, that Lord Jesus is willing to dwell within the Gentile heart. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That was spoken to the Colossians who were Gentiles. F.B. Meyer, another commentator, exclaims, the mystery is that the Lord Jesus is willing to dwell within the Gentile heart. That he should dwell in the heart of a child of Abraham was deemed a marvellous act of condescension, but that he should find home in the heart of a Gentile was incredible. God was made pleased God was pleased to make known through Paul the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The indwelling Christ is the believer's hope of glory. We have no other, no, no other title to heaven other than the Savior himself. And, and, and I just love this. He says, the fact that he indwells us makes heaven as sure as if we were already Maya goes on to say, he probably came in so quietly that we failed to detect his entrance. He does not strive, does not cry out, does not lift up or cause his voice to be heard. His tread is so light that he's not, there does not break a bruised reed. His breath is so soft that he can illuminate dying sparks. Don't be surprised, therefore, if you cannot tell the day or the hour when the Son of Man came to dwell within you, only know that he came. So in view of all of this, what should be the substance and method of God-ordained ministry? We preach Christ, Paul says. We are public messengers to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We herald to the world that Christ is first, that he's foremost, that he's preeminent, and that he is the only way to God. You know, I, I feel just nauseous when I see these church websites and billboards that give preeminence to people who look like movie stars who've just paid a million dollars for their teeth and, uh, you know, no ugly people in our church. Uh, you know, you look at our, the Our Ministries page and you'd think it was a social club for these rich, you know, worldly savvy, cool, sophisticated people who want to be admired for their gifts and talents. You know, sometimes you need to make a deliberate search on their website to find any mention of Jesus, but even if you do, it's not the same Jesus as in the Bible. But Paul said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul says, preaching about Christ has both a positive and a negative aspect. It includes both a warning to every man and teaching for every man. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. We see so much philosophy of ministry today that avoids biblical warning and teaching like the plague. Just come to Jesus. You know, he, he loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. You'll hear John 3.16, but you won't hear John 3.18 and 19. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. We must warn people, unless they repent and believe in Christ and the gospel, they remain condemned, no matter how many times they say yes to Jesus, whatever that means. It's an absolute tragedy that in so-called Christian churches today, many people cannot even articulate what they are actually saved from. The concept of God's righteous anger against sinners is totally foreign to them. They are taught that Jesus died to restore their self-worth, that he's obsessively in love with them. You know, he'll just, he'll just throw himself in the corner and cry if you don't respond to him. And that like some, you know, cosmic Santa Claus, he will grant them whatever they want. I visited a church a few years ago, and, and, and at communion time, a lady got up and gave a lengthy message about what communion means to her. I, I could see where this was going before she even started. She spoke about how she struggled to make ends meet before coming to Jesus, which is, you know, that's, that's nice. I, I, I'm not sort of knocking that. But now she said, Jesus has blessed me with so many things. I've got all this stuff including, you know, the new kitchen, which is exactly the one that I've always wanted. You know, this is a communion message. I, I, I'm not kidding. But, you know, you think if that's some, some, somehow that's odd, uh, this is the sort of stuff that millions of church attenders around the world are being taught all the time. I'm talking about millions. For example, Pastor Benny Johnson, B-E-N-I, Johnson, wife of well-known quote-unquote, Apostle Bill Johnson, wrote a book a couple of years ago entitled The Power of Communion, Accessing Miracles Through the Body and Blood of Christ. And in the book she states, she takes communion as a prophetic act, applying to any situation that is weighing on my heart. And by the way, any situation is seemingly unlimited. You know, it includes power over life circumstances, the acquisition of any sort of stuff that she may want. 
And she continues. During those moments, I simply ask the Holy Spirit, what should I do about this? And then if I feel prompted, for example, I take my shofar into the prayer house that we have at Bethel, or I go to a specific place to take communion, and in completing the prophetic act, I'm sorry, it's hard for me not to be sarcastic. We, we are releasing something into the atmosphere that helps to answer our prayer for a breakthrough. Wow. This is gutter religion at its worst. Can I say it any clearer? It comes across as oh so spiritual, but relegates Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as a means to getting personal power and control to get whatever you want in life. All you have to do is say, I love Jesus and you're in. You don't need to count the cost of being a disciple. Why? Because there is no cost. You just speak whatever you want into being, and Jesus, the cosmic genie, will give it to you. No, no, no. True preaching involves warning men that Jesus was crucified, not so they can have their best life now, but so as to avert the wrath of God abiding over them through the shedding of, of, shedding of Christ's precious blood that they can be saved. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him, remains on him. And Paul then says there is a, another aspect to the preaching about Christ. It involves teaching men with all the spirit-inspired wisdom that God has revealed through his holy word, presenting them to Christ as perfect in rare relationship to him. The word perfect here means mature or complete. When a sinner gets saved through faith in the finished work of the cross, he becomes perfect in the sense that he now stands before God flawless in Christ. God attributes the very righteousness of Jesus himself to the sinner. And the sinner can never become any more perfect in that sense. But if all there, that's all there was to it, there would be no need for Paul to strive uh, in the Greek, the word is agonizomai, which is where we get agonized from, towards that goal. Paul here defines the heart of a true pastor. He doesn't just lead men to Christ and then abandon them. My little children, he says in Galatians 4.19, for whom I labor in birth until Christ is formed in you. Paul likens his work to laboring for his children in Christ to the, to the agony of a mother giving birth, laboring for what? To present them to the Lord, not as weak, immature babes, but as mature, full-grown adults in Christ. This is the primary mission of every pastor teacher. There, and and it's, an, it's an orphan, awesome and intimidating task which comes with a scriptural warning. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. James 3.1 But it's not a task that any pastor has to strive towards without help. Paul says that he labors depending on Christ's mighty power that works in him mightily. Colossians 1.29. Any pastor who attempts to do anything without the mighty work of Christ working in him is headed for certain failure in the task of making mature, fully grown Christians. A pastor can labor to the point of exhaustion. He can agonize. He can, he can get along, sorry, he, he, alongside his labor. He must rely on God's power to work mightily in him. John MacArthur again comments, 
This reflects two parallel truths that are part of every great doctrine in Scripture. You must repent and believe to be saved, but it's the work of God. You must obey and worship to be sanctified, but it's the work of God. You must persevere to the end, but the Lord holds you secure. We minister with all our energy, all our might, but the power is God's. So we end where we began. The source is the strength. Paul's ministry was all that God wanted it to be because he was faithful to those things. So on that note, I want to end with something that you must do if you have never yet put your faith in Christ. Jesus Christ is the only capable, qualified Savior. The Bible says there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among mankind by which we must be saved. Saved from what? Saved from your sin. Matthew 1.21, And she will bear forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. Why? Because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23 God is setting before you this very day the choice of the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ or spiritual death in hell. God has done everything necessary for your salvation through Christ's work on the cross, but he requires you to turn from your sins and to believe in what he has done. There is no other way. There is no other saviour. In Christ alone, there is redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1.14. In Christ alone is the basis of the believer's hope which is laid up in heaven, Colossians 1.5. And Christ alone is the source of the believer's power for a new life. Colossians 1.11. Come to him. Come to him. If you've never trusted Christ for your salvation, come to him. If you, sp- if you thirst for spiritual life, the Bible says, and let him who thirst come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Revelation 22, 17. And Jesus said, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. So come to Christ in prayer. Prayer is the the simplest act in Christianity. It is simply speaking to God. It needs neither learning nor wisdom, only a heart and will on your part. The weakest infant can cry when he's hungry. The poorest beggar can hold his hand out for a gift and doesn't wait to find fine words or eloquence. Any man can pray to God if only he has a mind to. Tell God you want to turn away from your sin to trust in Jesus' work on the cross to save your soul. And if you do that with a sincere and true heart, God will hear you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your son. There is no other way to you, but only through your son, the exalted one, the holy one, the preeminent one, the one who is above all, Lord, we thank you for the work of the cross. We thank you, Lord, that 
guilty sinners with nothing in their hands to bring, nothing to recommend them to you. Lord, guilty sinners with sometimes lives that are just so incredibly messed up, it's like a scrambled egg that nobody can unscramble. Lord, we thank you that they can come to you. They don't need to bring anything except repentant hearts. Lord, except to truly seek you, except to truly believe in what you have done for them. When Jesus took their sins upon himself and took your angry wrath against sin on himself, Lord, so they could go free. Thank you that Jesus paid the price. Thank you that he said it is finished. There is nothing more to pay. Every sinner who comes to Christ, Lord, you will absolve of their guilt. You will make clean in your sight because they in your sight are perfect through Jesus' sacrifice. So, Lord, we pray tonight, Lord, whoever is hearing these words, whoever is hearing this invitation, it is not from me. It is not from a mere man. It comes from Christ himself. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's not a man that he should lie. Come to him. Sinner, come to him, bringing nothing in your hands and trusting in Jesus.